Hello, I'm Monica Reinagel, and you're listening to the Nutrition Diva Podcast. Welcome. For the last two weeks, the nutrition world has been consumed by a rancorous debate triggered by the publication of a highly controversial and hotly contested paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine. An international team of researchers undertook what they're pitching as the largest and most rigorous analysis to date of the effects of red meat consumption on human health. According to their analysis, the evidence that current consumption is causing harm or that reducing our consumption of red meat would lower risks is too weak and uncertain to justify the recommendation that people should eat less red meat. This, as you might imagine, has provoked a massive counter-protest from the experts and institutions that have been counseling us to eat less red meat. As they have been telling any media outlet that will listen, the evidence linking red meat consumption to harm is overwhelming and unambiguous. And to suggest otherwise, they say, is not just an attack on public health, but also on the public's trust in nutrition science and research. At its heart, this argument is really about methodology, how we gather data, how we analyze it, and how that gets translated into recommendations. Nutrition research is notoriously challenging and expensive to conduct and interpret. It can take a really long time, often decades, for our food choices to translate into health outcomes. The amount of calcium you get in your teens, for example, directly affects your risk of osteoporosis, but not for another 70 years. A change in diet may raise or lower your risk of colon cancer, but it might take 15 to 20 years for that to be revealed. And then there's the fact that we don't all respond the same way to the same diets due to genetic and epigenetic factors. In order to detect any signal in all that noise, you have to study lots of people for a long period of time. And as a result, most human dietary studies involve free-living subjects, and they rely on people's ability to recall, as well as their willingness to report, precisely what and how much they ate over the last 24 hours, or 30 days, or 12 months. It's not a perfect way to collect data. There are also a ridiculous number of variables. We eat three or four or more times a day. We may eat dozens of different foods over the course of a typical week and hundreds of different foods over the course of a typical year. We eat those foods prepared in dozens of different ways and in thousands of different combinations. Other variables include sleep, stress, activity levels, exposure to environmental pathogens, all of which generally change over time. So how do we capture or control for all of that? And then when it comes time to map all of that dietary information onto our health outcomes, well, which of the thousands of different markers, measures, signs, symptoms, and states of health are we monitoring? And how do we compare and combine the results of one study with another that shows a slightly different set of things to measure? Suffice it to say that human nutrition research does not lend itself to tidy data sets and airtight conclusions. There's a lot of interpretation required. In fact, it's possible to make the data say pretty much anything you want them to. And the fact is that researchers have biases which influence how they interpret the data. All of us, including researchers, 
tend to look for evidence to confirm what we already believe is true and reasons to discount evidence that undermines our beliefs. If your family has been raising beef cattle for generations, or you've made your career advocating for a high-protein diet, or you just love steak, you're probably going to be predisposed to believe evidence showing that red meat is healthful. If you grew up believing that eating animals is morally wrong, or you've staked your career or your reputation on the superiority of plant-based diets, or you sell lentils for a living, you're more likely to see the flaws in that same evidence. Like so many of the debates taking place right now in our civic life, this latest argument over whether red meat is killing us or making us stronger is unlikely to change any minds. Those who, for whatever reason, want to believe that red meat is harmless or beneficial will line up behind one set of experts and data. And those who are committed to the position that reducing or eliminating red meat will improve our health will line up behind the other, and everyone will claim that science is on their side. Caught in the crossfire here are hapless consumers who just want to do the right thing. They look to scientists, experts, and institutions for guidance. And I can understand why people get so frustrated when the experts can't seem to get their story straight. I'm not going to take sides in this debate. I'm not going to argue over which data should be included, how they should be analyzed, and which criteria should be applied to determine whether or not the outcome of this analysis is valid. Because these methodological discussions don't really help you decide what to have for dinner tonight. Here's what I think we need to keep in mind. Number one, no food is good or bad in a vacuum. It's always going to depend on how much you're eating, how you're preparing it, what you're eating it with, and what you might be eating if you weren't eating that instead. Context is everything. Number two, compared with other sources of protein, red meat has both nutritional advantages and disadvantages. It's high in B12, but contains no fiber. It's a great source of iron, but provides very little omega-3. When you get your protein from a variety of sources, including plant sources, you're going to get a broader array of benefits and reduce your exposure to any potential concerns. And third, our health is not the only factor to consider here. And I mean that statement in two ways. First, our health is not the only factor. Our dietary choices also have environmental impacts and animal welfare implications. And secondly, our health isn't the only factor. Preference, culture, convenience, cost, and enjoyment also play a role in our dietary decisions. Interestingly, the authors of this new analysis that exonerates red meat note that they did not consider environmental impact in their analysis, but they did consider consumer preferences. How you balance these factors against one another is going to be a highly individual decision. From a purely nutritional perspective, I wouldn't have any concerns about eating three to four servings of red meat per week in the context of a healthy diet. In other words, one with lots of vegetables, not too much sugar or fried food, and taking steps to minimize the formation of harmful compounds that are created when animal protein is charred over flames or hot coals. But because I'm also concerned about the environmental impacts of raising animals for meat, and because I also really enjoy and benefit from other sources of protein, like fish, eggs, and legumes, I choose to limit my red meat consumption to once a week or less. 
How have you balanced these conflicting concerns and narratives in your own choices? Do these sort of arguments among researchers make you feel less confident in your own conclusions, or do you just tune it out? Come join the conversation on the Nutrition Diva Facebook page. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. And if you're trying to create more balance and consistency in your own eating habits, check out my Nutrition GPA. It was recently named by the New York Times as one of four best food tracking apps, and you'll find it at nutritiongpa.com. You'll find a transcript of today's show along with the complete Nutrition Diva archives at quickanddirtytips.com, where you can also sign up for free email updates. Our show is produced by Nathan Sems, edited by Karen Hertzberg, and our Macmillan audio team also includes Morgan Ratner, Michelle Margulis, Emily Miller, Kate Hines, and our director, Kathy Doyle. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. 